We talk about the Harlem Renaissance as if it's self-evident. And we use the term Renaissance to suggest, of course, the idea of rebirth, that all of a sudden Harlem became an interesting place at this historical moment, roughly the late 1920s and 1930s. But I want to suggest that, in fact, the Harlem Renaissance um, misplaces the emphasis. Because Harlem had always been interesting. What was different about this historical period was that white culture finally became interested in what was going on in Harlem. And I want to argue that one of the reasons that white culture became interested in what was going on in Harlem was that prohibition had created a world in which if you wanted to engage in aspects of vice, drinking and, of course, um, especially non-normative forms of sex, you had to go up to Harlem. It was another country. And in a pattern not unfamiliar even today, the police left these aspects alone, um, of course, after paying, being paid off. So in Harlem, white people for the very first time came to experience African-American culture, and in so doing, talked about its very different social codes, most notably for our purposes with regard to sexuality. Because at this moment, Harlem was very much a different world with regard to same-sex desire. Harlem, for example, had something called buffet flats. Buffet flats were rented apartments in which, in one room, one would see a man and a woman, and in another room would be a man and a man, and another room would be a woman and a woman. You could either watch, or for an extra bit of money, you could participate. And what was striking about the buffet flats is, in fact, the name, a buffet. It suggests, of course, that what you are interested in, what you partake of, is merely an aspect of your taste. It doesn't define who you are or make you different than anybody else. Harlem had a much more open same-sex culture than anywhere else in America at the time. And as whites first came to Harlem and experienced that culture, they were enamored of it, talked about it, and wrote about it. No figure more powerfully than Carl von Vechten, who was the great popularizer of the Harlem Renaissance to white America. But it wasn't only to white America that these same-sex codes signified. And importantly, one of the leading blues artists of the period, Ma Rainey, took one career-limiting incident and made it, in fact, something that made her quite celebrated. Ma Rainey was hosting in 1925, uh, basically a lesbian orgy. And the police were called because of the noise. They raided the apartment. All the girls escaped, but Ma Rainey, who was a large woman, fell down the fire escape and was arrested. Everybody knew that Ma Rainey had been arrested for hosting a lesbian orgy, but nonetheless, there was nothing in the social codes or the law of the time that allowed her to be charged with that, so she was charged as a madam for running a body house. Three years later, in 1928, she releases a record called Prove It On Me Blues. And here's the advertisement for Prove It On Me Blues. It shows Ma Rainey, the large, heavyset woman in the center, looking lasciviously at two svelte younger women while cops look at her. So she's using the very incident that got her into trouble to sell the record. And the lyrics of Prove It On Me Blues even more powerfully attest to this moment that everybody then understood. They say I do it, she sings. Ain't nobody caught me. You all gotta prove it on me. Remember, she was arrested in the fire escape. She wasn't arrested, you know, red-handed. Hey, 
And then she goes on to say, yes, it's true I wear a collar and a tie. Yes, it's true I don't like men. She's constantly seeding the recognition on the part of the listener that she's actually not interested in men, that she is a lesbian. But then she teases back, but they say I do it. You Ain't nobody caught me. Y'all gotta prove it on me. It worked as a strategy and as a song, and this was the number one selling record of 1928.